You're listening to the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. The college football playoff is here. It is showdown Saturday on this New Year's Eve. Doesn't get better than this. Which teams will move on to the national championship? Rocking Rich Sermonello. This is what it's all about. Four teams, one trophy. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm with you, Joe. I'm excited. Uh, we're still in the morning hours. We have a little way to go before we have Alabama-Washington, but I've been pumped up for these two games for the past month since the matchups were announced. Uh, I couldn't be more pumped to see these games. We've had some good sort of appetizers leading up to it, but this is the buffet. This is something that college fans have been waiting for for a very long time. And college fans are chomping at the bit. I mean, you look at that game last night, Florida State prevailing 33-32 to over Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. We saw some marquee matchups throughout the bowl week, interconference battles. I, I really uh, unbelievable outcomes because I can't believe some of the outcomes we've seen underdog city in this bowl season. And now when you look at these matchups today, number one against number four, we have two and three taking place. A lot of people just expecting the favorites to steamroll Alabama, Ohio State to be there, but there is the possibility of both underdogs winning these matchups and facing each other in the national championship game. Yeah, listen, I like one of the underdogs. I I won't unveil it just yet, but, uh, you know, listen, long layoffs, as you know, Joe, you know this sport about as well as anybody that I know. Long layoffs do funny things to teams. It's not the usual schedule. During the regular season, it's playing week after week, once, maybe twice a season. You'll get a bye. You'll get two weeks to prepare for your next opponent. For many teams, this has now been three or four weeks. You have teams healthier than they were at the end of November. You have teams with new distractions in December. You have the the heightened expectations, the pressure of playing in a playoff game. So this is an entire, entirely different ball game than what we're accustomed to. And I think that's why we've seen some very odd results throughout the month of December. And it's not the only games being played today. We do have an 11 a.m. kick between LSU and Louisville. Stay with us for the next two hours. Rich and I have you covered for a great show. We'll go through all the matchups, including the semifinal playoff games today, as well as those marquee battles on Monday, January 2nd. We'll take you straight through. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at go for the 2 That's the number two you could follow Rich on Twitter at Rich Sermonello. That's C-I-R-M-I-N-I-E-L-L-O. If you want to talk college football with Rich and me, give us a call. 844-843-6879. That's 844-843-6879. Rich, uh, uh, some intriguing news that came out this week. Obviously, yesterday in the Sun Bowl, Christian McCaffrey, Elijah Hood did not play in their respective matchups. Stanford picked up a gutty 25-23 to victory. They lost their quarterback, Keller Christ, in that matchup. Burns, their backup quarterback, stepped up and made plays. But you look at the marquee battle last night between Florida State and Dalvin Cook and Michigan and Jabril Peppers. The big news was Jabril Peppers having a hamstring 
hamstring injury, did not play in that matchup. It was a game-time decision. want to get your thoughts because there has been both sides of the fence, and we talked about it with McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette not playing in their respective bowl games. A lot of criticism coming down that Jabril Peppers stood out because he might want to help his draft status in the NFL draft. He hasn't committed yet. But both sides of the fence, a lot of people close to him said he was really hurt. He was not the type of guy to sit out that marquee battle. I want to get your thoughts about uh, his, uh, I want to say, pulling out at the last minute in that ballgame last night. Well, I, I mean, from a fan's perspective, Joe, disappointed. Jabril Peppers was one of those players, one of those marquee guys that you want to see one last time. I would be very surprised, shocked if he doesn't declare in the next week or two for the NFL draft, uh, still has eligibility, uh, probably a first-round draft choice. There have been suggestions uh, that Peppers was suffering from bowl flu this time of of the year. I don't (laughs) think that was the case. I I mean, if you watched him on the sidelines, looking at him trying to warm up, this is just my speculation. It looked like someone that was in physical and emotional pain. He wanted to participate in that Orange Bowl. He wanted a crack at Dalvin Cook. I think he wanted to play. To go through that kind of uh, sort of drama in front of the cameras would surprise me. I think he wanted to play. I think he wasn't 100%. And, and really, look at what happened last night. I want to see this develop, Joe, and I'd like your take on it. We talked a lot about McCaffrey. We talked a lot about Jalen Smith last year. How about Jake Butt? Injured knee, possibly the top tight end in the NFL draft. I'm not suggesting he should have sat out last night's game, but this is potentially another example of a kid who suffers an injury that could impact him in April. And that's a great point because Jim Harbaugh said that it was an ACL or MCL, no definitive uh, uh, prognosis at this point. But yeah, he Mm -hmm. caught a 16-yard reception and then did get hurt in that matchup. It's a carryover effect, I guess, in terms of what we spoke about earlier in the week because we brought this up about is this going to be a trickle-down effect for other players? Now, this is the other side of the fence now. Jabril Peppers probably most likely was in injured in this matchup now has to receive criticism because a lot of people weren't in favor of McCaffrey or Fournette sitting out of their bowl games respectively. And now players might receive negative criticism even in fact when they are injured if they stay out of their bowl game. So uh, Shock Linwood was another one. We brought him up yeah. earlier in the week. This is going to be the other side of the fence now where players might in fact be really be injured but then have to sit out and hear the fans criticize them about not being, you know, uh, hard or you know into their into the game yep. because they're they're selfish. Joe, that's an excellent point. I didn't think about it either, but you bring up a really cogent point. If a kid is ninety percent, maybe during the regular season he suits up, but he decides at this point. I don't want to risk further injury. I know a week from now I'm going to be in Phoenix or I'm going to be somewhere in Florida training for for NFL draft prep. Maybe I sit out, and it's hard to blame that kid. But to your point, someone like Elijah Hood, who was clearly hurt, I even heard some uninformed people saying, "Eh, Hood is someone who wants to sit out the Sun Bowl, doesn't want to risk in the event that he turns pro early. So you bring up an excellent point. We're not going to know. And because of HIPAA laws, you know, we're not going to know a lot of the details in 
terms of the medical conditions of these kids, but someone could be legitimately hurt at this time of the year, sits out, and then feels a lot of criticism in the process. Unbelievable, because you look at a guy like Jabril Peppers, a real gamer, and, and again, he is probably, like you said, most likely hasn't made the, the statement yet. He's going to move on to the NFL draft, but Elijah Hood's coming back for 2017. He's already made that uh, statement that he will be back with the Tar Heels, so we'll see how it plays out the rest of the way. It'll carry over into January, late January, where players will make their commitments to, to the NFL draft, and we'll see which players are coming back to their respective programs, and others will move on to the NFL, but for me, I, I look at this bowl season, and we've been on both sides of the fence as well, Rich, where you're, you're in favor of less bowl games. I want to see more, and I, I looking at these bowl games this week, I, I'm telling you, I can't I want more of it. Give me more because the games, in my opinion, have been lights out. You even look at that. For me, I'll give them my top three bowl games this week. Really impressed with that matchup between South Florida and South Carolina, the game going into overtime. I was really impressed earlier in the week with that Boston College-Maryland game. I mean, there were more momentum turns in that battle than I can possibly remember. And then the Liberty Bowl the other night was another marquee battle. And then in, in last night, Jordan Georgia and TCU played down to the wire. I mean, we've been really, as fans, subjected to great college football over the last week and a half. Yeah, and again, I'm not suggesting we go from 40 to 20. I would just like to see us get rid of the 6-6, six and 5-7 six, and seven teams. I'd have to do the math, Joe, to see what that number would bring us to. But I would be happy if we went from, say, 40 to 30. I won't beat this to death, but I, I do think it impacts the regular season. I, I think we could have more exciting Novembers if teams are really fighting for that 7-5, and 8-4 mark to get to the postseason. And then one other thing, too, you might be in the minority, and it might be anecdotal at this point, but if you look at early TV ratings, if you look at the stands, again, this has been an ongoing trend. Look at the stands early in these games. They might be competitive and entertaining, but they're not really garnering a lot of interest. They seem to be kind of like background noise during the holidays and I think our sport the sport that we love can be better in the postseason so I'll be curious to see yep uh, uh, six bowls this year no sponsor so there's a financial impact financially some bowls are having problems I will be interested to see if we have a retraction if we have some kind of attrition that brings us down even a first step down to about 35 or 36 bowls it'll be interesting we'll see how it plays out uh, in 2017 with the bowl system We'll see how the games play out today and on January 2nd. Uh, the other big news in college football was that the non-Power 5 teams want to yeah. have their own possible playoff. I don't know if I'm in favor of that because I see a team like Western Michigan play uh, Wisconsin uh, today, and I really feel that, in my opinion, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see the separation or the segregation. That's almost like an NIT tournament for college football. We'll I have don't think te- it is. You don't think yeah, so? I don't, I don't, no, I, I, I've heard that brought up. I just want to jump in. I hate to cut you off, no. but NIT, NIT, you are strictly taking beyond 68. 
you know, you're starting at 69, 70, 71 in order to fill up those NIT spots. That would not be the case if we had a mini group of five playoff. I don't know if they're talking four teams or eight teams. Right. But you would have teams like Western Michigan, Boise State, Colorado State, San Diego State. I brought this up years ago just sort of hypothetically, never thinking that it could possibly come to fruition. But I know the Western Michigans would be hurt by not participating in the Cotton Bowl. But I think we'd have some really meaningful football in December, some really spirited games amongst, you know, those teams from the American Sun Belt Mountain West and so on. I, I think that would be exciting for fans. Yeah, it would be exciting, but here's the counter argument to that. Would you see as many teams I, I would say go for it like Western Michigan where they're undefeated and they're playing in the mm-hmm. cotton bowl and you see uh, maybe a on their schedule because they play out of conference games. They played Illinois, they played Northwestern this year and dominated both of those teams to win and obviously finish the season undefeated. But if they play those games, knowing like, oh, we could just take it off and now we'll just face Boise State in a playoff game, is that the same type? Is that what we want? Knowing that they're not trying to make it to the to the January second bowl game or or you know the the group of five you know New Year's Day six bowls and the just we're, we're going to save ourselves for the non power five playoff. I mean, is that what we want? Because then now we then we will have a separation. And and I don't want to see that. Well, to to that I would say, Joe, don't we have the separation right now? I mean, I know I know they're both members of the FBS. I get that. But the separation couldn't be more clear. I mean, no one from the group of five is going to participate, not not in the foreseeable future. They're not going to be a part of the playoffs. Yeah, they get that one slot uh, you know, in the uh, New Year's Six Bowl games, Cotton Bowl this year. Last two years, group of five has done well. And I love that. I love the Cinderella games. I'm excited about Western Michigan and Wisconsin. But... You know, I, I, I think we need to add something for the fans in December. We need to add more meaningful football than just two playoff games. I think this is a step in that direction. I'll be curious. I know the American, Mike Oresco, their commissioner, has already said he's against it. So I don't know if this will actually come to fruition, but I think it's a fun debate topic. Here's the thing that I don't want to bring up on that subject. Is this like a power play card? to possibly expand the playoff from four to eight teams? Uh, is this the, the, the non-Power 5 getting together and saying, well, they've said that it's not going to expand in the near future, mm-hmm. so let's, let's force their hand, so to speak. Because you, you know that the college football playoff committee wants everybody involved. They don't want to have a separation. They don't want to have just the, the group of five. They want every team fighting for that playoff to keep the game pure and to keep it dollars. And, because you're going to have separate sponsors. If, if you have separation with the non-group of Power 5 teams – you're going to have teams that or sponsors that back the non-power five want to want to just sponsor the playoff, and then you're going to have the the group of five teams or whoever's back Nissan and all those sponsors mm-hmm. want to just sponsor the college football playoff, and now you now you're sort of separating the two. And even though it might not seem that on the field, from an economic yeah. standpoint, that's what we have. But hold that thought. We'll take a quick yeah. break. We're live right here from the Big Apple Rock and Riley State of the Art Studios right here in Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello coming right back, talking LSU Louisville. Keep it where it is. Back on College Football Game Day right here from the Fantasy Sports Radio Network Studios 
Rockin' Riley's Big Apple. Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello doesn't get better than this. Rich, we have a marquee battle. LSU, SEC, ACC, Louisville. Heisman Trophy winner Lamar Jackson kicking off in about 43 minutes later today. This is an intriguing battle. I really like LSU here. I think the physicality on the offense and defense aligns to me will wear down Louisville. They gave up 200 yards plus in that season-ending loss to Kentucky. I think this is a bad matchup for the Cardinal later today. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm excited about this matchup, Joe, and I'll tell you why. I, I'm always looking for the storylines in December and January, uh, particularly when we get outside of the playoffs. For me, this is the first game of the rest of, of, of Ed Orgeron's life, basically, of his <laughs> coaching life. I, I mean, this is such an important game. He now, you know, he gets rid of the interim tag. He's the permanent head coach, even though he wasn't maybe option A or option B, but this is his first opportunity to make a statement. He gets to do it against Bobby Petrino. He gets to do it against Lamar Jackson. And to your point, I also like the physicality of LSU. I like the diversity of the defense of LSU. And and I think a month to prepare for Lamar Jackson to force him. We talked about it all season long. You want to force him to be more of a pocket passer. He's still developing in that area of his game. And Louisville finished the season and very weakly, a lot of controversy away from the field with wakey leaks and that <laughs> problem. So, you know, I, I, I think I think LSU is really up for this battle. I kind of like the fact that there's no specter of Leonard Fournette. Darius Geis gets to be, you know, the leading man. He's the cover boy today in Florida. So I really like LSU, agree with you. I think they roll against Louisville. And it's more like they're more of a team. I hate to say that because Leonard Fournette's a dynamic player, dynamic team player, but they really came together without him in the lineup. You look at Darius Geis breaking his uh, single-season record that he set against Ole Miss with 285 yards at the end of the year against College Station, in College Station against the Aggies. But I just felt like they came together when Leonard Fournette was out of the lineup. Other players had to step up, and that's where I feel LSU is in this ballgame. You bring up Wakey Leaks, and that's an interesting uh, conversation because you look at Wake Forest, what they were able to do knocking off Temple and winning that matchup in their respective bowl game. Now the pressure from Louisville. Well, you know, we we don't know how the pressure of all that criticism and scrutiny has affected not only Bobby Petrino, but the players from answering questions. Do you think it affected the, the game against Wake Forest? We don't know what's going on in that locker room. So for me, I think the more complete team from that aspect is LSU because they removed the interim tag from Ed Ogeron. The players were behind it. He's a player's coach. They now have their sights set on the 2017 season. Darius Geis uh, possibly, in my opinion, the front runner for the Heisman. So all eyes on 2017 in Baton Rouge. And here's the other thing, too. They have the benefit of hiring Matt Canada now from uh, Pittsburgh, the offensive coordinator. Dave Aranda will be there. You have Dave Aranda now uh, scheming for Lamar Jackson for the last four and a half weeks. And I look for Arden Key to step up. This is an LSU Tiger defense, Rich, that only allowed 121 rushing yards per game. You look at uh, Louisville's uh, defensive front seven. As the year progressed, they wore down, especially in run support. 
Yeah, you nailed it. I, I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, to me, if I were to summarize LSU, you hit on it, Joe. I, I think this team is already starting to move towards 2017. And when I say that, I think it's a program with momentum. I, I think they'll use Orlando this morning as a jumping off point to next season. And I'm not saying Louisville doesn't have a bright future as well. Lamar will be a junior next year. He has to return for that season. A lot of talent, a lot of speed, a lot of players from Florida. So they'll be excited to be back in the Sunshine State. But I agree with you. More complete football team. Love Darius Geis. I think he is the star this afternoon. And that defensive talent, you know, Lamar Jackson up and down as a passer. Now he's got to throw into the teeth of a secondary that has Tredavious White and has Jamal Adams and has Kevin Tolliford. So much next level talent on the back end of that defense. So he'll pop off some exciting plays. I don't doubt that for a second. He'll have a sprint or two through the LSU defense. I just don't think it'll be enough. Would not be shocked. If we see guys starting that Heisman campaign that you mentioned with about 175 to 200 yards today. And I brought up this point as well. You can look at that season-ending loss to Kentucky. It wasn't just the rushing attack with Boom Williams and the Kentucky Wildcat offensive line that seemed to wear down Louisville. It was Steven Johnson that attacked that secondary for over 300 yards passing in that battle. So I think the same type of game plan for LSU, pound guys between the tackles, wear down the defensive front seven of Louisville, have Josh Harvey Clemens come up in run support and then look for play action with Danny Etling over the top with Traven Durrell and Malachi Dupree. You look at Danny Etling in the last game of the year, he really came on passing for 324 yards and two touchdowns in that dominating road win against Texas A&M. That's what I see LSU doing from an offensive perspective. Defensively, I look for Dave Aranda to really put a spy on Lamar Jackson. I look for Arden Key to be a big factor in this ball game. And, you know, and when you look at Lamar Jackson's uh, elusiveness as a quarterback, that offensive line as a whole this year still has allowed 39 sacks as a yeah. unit, 11 against Houston. Yeah, no, I, I listen, Louisville has had a problem on the offensive line now for the past two or three seasons. I don't see any star power. I don't see any consistency. Now, Lamar tends to tuck it and run a little bit too quick sometimes. He's still learning as a as a guy who should stay in the pocket. Sometimes he should throw the ball away. Some of those sacks are on him. But that is far too much pressure. You mentioned Arden Key. How about Lewis Neal? How about Kendall Beckwith? They have superior talent to Louisville. I always try to look at the motivation. I think LSU is excited for this game. They want to finish strong. They want to get that first victory for Orgeron as a permanent head coach. So I think this is an A day for LSU and reason to be excited for next season. I like that you bring up Canada. Canada will probably be salivating as he watches some of those skill players that he'll be inheriting in 2017. It's almost like an offensive audition. That's the way I look at it. We've seen it yeah. over recent years. Remember and when Steve Sarkeesian took the job at USC, he didn't coach in the bowl game when they went to the Las Vegas Bowl, but that was a big MO about how USC was looking forward to sort of audition for Steve Sarkeesian when their head coach is on the sidelines watching. Well, same thing with an offensive coordinator. You have a big play guy in Matt Canada that brought offensive prowess to Pittsburgh with Nate Peterman. Now you have all these offensive weapons that haven't really... Uh, broken through in 2016. We see two wide receivers, Traven Durrell, Malachi Dupree, that are just salivating, saying, get me the football. 
Well, yep. I think it's going to be a big day as well. Here's the other thing, too, from a speed perspective. I don't think Louisville has played a defense. You can mention Clemson, yes, but I still think LSU, from a speed perspective, a little bit faster than Clemson, running sideline to sideline, especially in run support, and I think Lamar Jackson won't see that type of speed. I know he dominated Florida State, but I think this is a different animal with Dave Aranda's group. And do you have to wonder, Joe, sometimes you've been on the award circuit, I've been on the award circuit, you know, you, you go to the Heisman, you're out, you know, in Atlanta for the ESPN College Award Show, you're picking up hardware, he's a young kid, he's the uh, youngest Heisman winner ever, you talk about distractions, you know, the talent is there, but you wonder if the focus is as well as he heads into this bowl game. It's very intriguing. I, I brought up a statistic. My good buddy Mark Lawrence gave it to me, and I'll give it to you. Heisman Trophy quarterbacks that were underdogs in their bowl games, Rich, were 0 and 5 and from the Vegas angle, did not cover yeah, those yeah. ball games. So uh, the, uh, it's a great, Louis, it's a great Louis, nugget. It's a great nugget for the audience. Yeah, yep. Louis, Louisville's three and a half point favorite uh, underdogs in this matchup. So we'll see how that plays out. Here's a guy. Keep your eye on. I, uh, I love this kid, Duke Riley, linebacker for LSU. Very underrated yeah. linebacker. We mentioned Beckwith, Arden Key. He's another guy, just a blue collar kid that I really think is the heart and soul of that defense, especially in run support. He they love to blitz him as well. So keep an eye out for him later today. I'm going to call for a double-digit victory here. I really think LSU can win this matchup. I think, you know what, I think it could be high scoring, much in the area of the way Texas A&M game went. I say, I think LSU could put up 47 on their defense. 40, wow. 47-30. Wow. I think it could be really high scoring in, in, that, in this game today. Yeah, I, I think it'll be a little bit. Uh, I think it'll be a little more in the area of uh, 30s, maybe maybe 35, 27, 35, 28, possibly a double-digit victory. But I'm confident in LSU. I think this line is still at minus three. Is it Joe somewhere in the neighborhood of about minus yeah, three? Yeah, minus three. Uh, I really like LSU. I'd be very surprised if they lose this afternoon. Another 11 o'clock game is an SEC ACC battle under the radar. Kentucky and Mark Stoops, seven and five overall, taking on Georgia Tech at eight and four. Paul Johnson getting the Yellow Jackets back to a bowl game. I like the triple option here. I took all triple option attacks in the bowl season with the exception of Army against North Texas. You saw Air Force wear down South Alabama 45-21 to after falling behind 21-6 to in that matchup. I still like Justin Thomas, and I like the defense of Georgia Tech here. Uh, Kentucky allowing 225 rushing yards per game, Rich. To me, that's the difference. I like the Yellow Jackets in a double-digit victory. Uh, in about 32 minutes later today. I like this to be an entertaining game because both teams can run the ball. Both teams have had success offensively. Neither has a preponderance of defensive talent, Joe. So I like Georgia Tech as well. I think it'll be a little bit closer than you're prognosticating. But I expect to see a lot of points, a lot of yards on the ground. Uh, Benny Snell has a, had a great rookie season uh, yeah, for Kentucky out of the backfield. Really has played well. Boom Williams, you mentioned, good compliment for Kentucky. But at the end of the day, Justin Thomas is healthy. He's had a month to rest, did not finish the season at 100%. I think he has a big afternoon. Georgia Tech wins, 
and kudos to Paul Johnson. I had him on his way out. I thought for sure he was getting canned this year. Right. Once they got off to a slow start, now they're 8-4. and four. He's another guy, too. Uh, he's like an up-and-down coach. You never know what you're going to get in terms of consistency yep. because he's not really – he doesn't seem like a player's coach. And from what I've hear, heard from the Ge- Georgia Tech uh, faithful out there, they can never get a read on Paul Johnson because – Again, when you look at their spring games, they never have a big turnout. The fan support there in Atlanta always seems to to go the way of Georgia in Athens over there. So they're always behind the eight ball, so to speak, to their arch rival, the Bulldogs. But they pulled off another marquee victory in their rivalry game. He's another guy that when you least expect it, they step up and seem to dominate teams that they shouldn't. So we'll see how it plays out. We'll continue our coverage and analysis with this game. Kentucky and Georgia Tech kicking off in about 31 minutes. We'll take a quick break. This is Joe Lisi, Ritz Sermonello, live from the Fantasy Sports Radio Network, state-of-the-art studio, right here in the Big Apple, Rockin' Riley's. Keep it where it is. Back on College Football Game Day, College Bowl Edition. Rich Sermonello and I are breaking down Kentucky and Georgia Tech. Rich, this is a really intriguing battle because a lot of pressure was on Mark Stoops at the beginning of the season. Didn't really have the offensive consistency, especially in the rushing attack. They lost Patrick Tolles to Boston College. He transferred. Drew Barker did not step up. Might have been the best thing that happened to this team because quarterback Steven Johnson really has progressed in Mark Stoops' system, and they're averaging 187 passing yards per game, but he's progressed as the season has worn on, and he's a guy that can really step up in this bowl game to pull the Wildcats to a victory later today. Yeah, and I think that's why it's going to be an exciting game. Really was impressed down the stretch with the Kentucky offense. I mentioned the two backs that they have. You mentioned you mentioned Johnson, so there's some versatility. There's some balance on that offense. There is no shortage of motivation for Kentucky to be back in the postseason at 7-5. and five. This is big for Mark Stoops. This is big for the kids. I get excited about games in which the players are excited. I expect to see that from Kentucky. One player I really want to focus on, you know, in the fog of war during the regular season, in a Kentucky you can't get too granular on, but when I watch film of Jordan Jones, their sophomore linebacker, I've been very impressed. He gets an opportunity against a run-oriented offense, so look for about 15, 16 tackles out of Jordan Jones today. I see this game as well. I see Georgia Tech. If you watch them defensively, it's almost like a bend but don't break type of defense where they force teams to drive on them. And then once they get inside the 30, they hold them to field goals. They're only allowing 25 points per game. They're giving up 174 rushing yards on the ground, 233 passing yards per game. That's where I think if you're a Kentucky fan, you need the Wildcats to attack Georgia Tech secondary. That's the way you beat the triple option. You have to jump up on it early through the passing attack and force them to match you score for score. That's why I think Steven Johnson is the X factor for Kentucky. As he goes, so does that offense. But I really think it comes down to Justin Thomas as well. His experience in the triple option. The triple option is a lot different in game speed than it is in practice situation. We say it time and time again, but it is the truth. When you have a dynamic quarterback like Justin Thomas that can create, it's very hard to replicate, even though you might have a player on the scout team. When you see it in game time situations with the zone blocking scheme, it's very hard to defend. 
Yeah, and, and this is a 5'11 triple option quarterback. So, you know, no worries that he's thinking ahead to the NFL. No worries that he's going to half-heart it uh, in order to keep himself healthy. This is his final game as the Yellow Jacket quarterback has had a distinguished career, began as a starter very early on the flats. So for him, this is an opportunity to finish his season on a high note, and to get to 9-4 and four would be a big deal for Georgia Tech. Again, I can't reiterate it enough. Georgia Tech has a new athletic director. Back in September, it looked like Paul Johnson might be on his way out. The fact that they rallied, as well as they did, really is a testament to Johnson. Having said that, I think you summarized it very well. You never know what you're going to get from his teams. You're not going to necessarily get an ACC title, but those uh, those Yellow Jackets are competitive year in and year out. And you've seen now the ACC play very well in the bowl season. I mean, they've really stepped up and really dominated some of their bowl games. The SEC, when you look at it from top to bottom, yeah, Georgia got the victory. Tennessee got the victory yesterday over Nebraska. But as a whole, really hasn't stepped up as a conference. So, uh, again, I've seen some weaknesses out of the SEC teams, and we'll see how LSU plays a little bit later today. And here's the thing, too, when I look at Kentucky, that you want to make sure that you have to shut down. In their five losses, Rich, they've allowed 254 rushing yards per game. So they're going to need to shut down the run and force Georgia Tech into third down and long situations. If you can make that offense one-dimensional and predictable on third downs, you'll probably win, get three and outs, and give your offense opportunity and better field position. But you're going to need to create turnovers as well, and that's the one thing Kentucky has not done consistently minus six in turnover margin entering this game Georgia Tech enters with a plus three margin so we'll see which team plays uh, the, the you know mistake free football but I like this I think Georgia Tech wins I'll say 33 to 20 later today I think it's a double digit victory by the Yellow Jackets and I think there will be even more scoring again. Most of the talent in this game, Joe, is on the offensive side of the ball. Not a lot of star power, with the exception of Jordan Jones, uh, the Kentucky linebacker. So I think this game could even get into the 40s, potentially. Wow. I agree with you. I think it's Georgia Tech. We both like the Yellow Jackets and LSU fans. I think that's a 2-0 and start for Lisi and Sermonello. Uh, Lisi and Sermonello, uh, I'm a little nervous when we agree on the same <laughs> side. I uh, know. We, 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 we also love Texas A&M last I, week, too. We so. agreed on a lot of the early games, <laughs> and we, yeah. we didn't start out so well. I've been, I've been knocking them dead, though, throughout the bowl season. I had some good winners. I did have hung on with North, North Carolina yesterday. They lost by two, but uh, started the week at plus three, ended at two and a half. So uh, a backdoor cover there by North Carolina, hanging on, clinging. Uh, before we move on to the next game, I, I do want to talk about that in the Sun Bowl. I, I did not see the consistency out of Mitch Trubisky yesterday in stepping up. Yeah. He made some poor decisions. And if this kid has any eyes on the NFL draft, I would stay in school and go back to Chapel Hill in 2017. Totally yeah, totally agree. I, I mean, I had this discussion last night. Could not agree more. I think the problem right now, Joe, is if you look at the uh, 
the other quarterbacks that either are seniors or thinking about coming or coming out early, like Deshaun Watson, it is not a great class of quarterbacks. So if Trubisky is going to be compelled to come out and possibly make a run at the first round, this could be the year to do it. Having said that, I think you're spot on. I think another year with Larry Fedora, another year in Chapel Hill, provided he doesn't get injured, I think can only benefit this kid having him prepare for 2018. I think he comes out because there's just not that much competition, but I didn't like his consistency in El Paso yesterday either. And you look at the defensive scheme by Stanford, that's what he's going to see in the NFL. And a very NFL type of defense by David Shaw and the Stanford Cardinal. They forced him to work down the field. They forced him to make his reads and progressions, and he made mistakes, and he almost, he did cost his team the ball game because they had the lead with the football. He threw the interception, a pick six the other way, and that's what propelled the Cardinal to the 25-23 victory yesterday in El Paso. Yeah, and, and listen, I, I, I don't want to dog Mitch Trubisky. I think he no, has a not bright at all. future. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, Gary Danielson mentioned yesterday, and this might be high praise, but he mentioned comparisons to Carson Wentz, and you can see similarities. They're big-bodied, strong-armed quarterbacks who can make plays outside of the pocket. I also like the poise and the clutch that he showed during the regular season. But when it comes to quarterbacks, unless you're – certainly ready, Joe, or a bona fide top five pick, I think it's always a good idea to go back to school. And you want to make the comparison before uh, Trubisky and Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz knocked off power five teams with lesser talent (laughs) on the road. He knocked off teams like Kansas State and Iowa State. Uh, Trubisky, with solid talent around him, uh, at the end of the year, did not step up in competition and get his team the W. So that's what I look at from an intangible perspective. If you're going to compare the two, Carson Wentz was more battle-tested than Mitch Trubisky at this point in his career. Yeah, hey, listen, Trubisky did have the big win over Florida State, uh, had the comeback win against Pittsburgh, a team that wound up being better than a lot of us expected this season. So he has played in a lot of big football games. My money is on him leaving early. I have some sources who have talked to his parents. I don't think they've made a decision yet, but he is leaning towards coming out early. Here's a rematch, Rich, of a bowl game that took place in the mid-2000s. Iowa and Florida, the Outback Bowl. It is Monday, January 2nd. We're going ahead. We'll come back the last hour of the show. We'll talk about the semifinal games, but Iowa and Florida. You look at this matchup, Rich. Statistically, both teams mirror each other. Kirk Ferentz, a blue-collar team in in Iowa with quarterback C.J. Beathard, Jim McElwain, the SEC East champs in the Gators. I like Florida in this matchup. I, I really feel that their defense is secondary. Quincy Wilson, Jalen Tabor on the outside. They can match up, play man-to-man coverage, only giving up 156 passing yards per game. I think they can make C.J. Beathard in that offense one-dimensional. I think Florida runs away with this game 13 points or more. I I think at least 10 points or more. I I just think the speed of that defense will take over, and I think Florida dominates this matchup. Well, I'll say in the area of 30 to 13 over Iowa. I think it's a closer game. I like the way Iowa finished the regular season, Joe. Obviously, the big win over Michigan defensively. They were playing very well down the stretch. Now you match up that defensive talent against Florida, which has sputtered offensively what seems like 
like the past decade, and I think that continues next week against Iowa. I think it's a low-scoring game. Special teams, place kickers will play a pivotal role in the outcome. At the end of the day, I have to go with the team with the best unit. That is the Florida defense, as you mentioned, provided that they're motivated, provided that the Quincy Wilsons and the Jalen Tabers are motivated because they're off to the NFL next season. I like Florida, but I think it's close and low scoring. I just don't have any confidence in that Gator offense, particularly against a pretty good Hawkeye D. Luke Del Rio is available for the team. He was battling injuries throughout the year. Austin Appleby stepped up and made plays for that Florida offense. They're passing for 215 yards per game. They're going to need to throw over the top of that secondary, led by uh, defensive back Desmond King for the Hawkeyes. Iowa allowing 199 passing yards per game. When Rich and I come back, we'll give our prediction and analysis for this battle. The Outback Bowl, Iowa and Florida State. We're taking a quick break. This is Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello, live from the Fantasy Sports Radio Network studios right here in Rockin' Riley's. Keep it where it is. Back on College Football Game Day, right here from the Rockin' Riley State of the Art Studios Fantasy Sports Radio Network, breaking down this marquee battle in the Outback Bowl, Iowa and Florida. Rich thinks Iowa will step up. I'm all over the Gators. Here's what I look at when I look at this matchup, Rich. You brought up an excellent point in last segment about Florida being motivated. We saw last year where Michigan dominated the Gators when players like Vernon Hargraves declared for the draft. I think that'll motivate this team not to show up the way they did last year. And I think Jim McElwain will make adjustments to make sure that doesn't happen. Here's what I look at when I look at this matchup as well. Florida, very solid in run support, only giving up 142 rushing yards per game. They do have 30 sacks on the year. And I look at the offensive line play by Iowa, very inconsistent this year. Yeah, at the end of the year, they seem to have continuity and pound the rock between the tackles. But they're only averaging 171 yards per game. Last year, they were up around 200. And that puts pressure on C.J. Beathard as a passer. They don't have that legitimate big play receiver that they did last year like Tevin Smith. That's why they're only averaging 161 passing yards per game. That's why I like Florida in this matchup. Yeah, and Matt Vandenberg went out early this season. He was supposed to be the the successor to Tevin Smith in terms of the the go-to number one receiver for Beathard just never happened. And listen, when I say Iowa steps up, I think it's a competitive game. I think Florida wins. And let me add one more point. In terms of motivation, I agree with you. Uh, as far as McIlwain goes, I don't think he'll let last year happen again. And in terms of health, Florida played exceptionally well on defense, right? Big goal line stand against LSU late in the season in that victory. And they were not 100%. Now Jared Davis, middle linebacker, close to 100%. Alex Anzalone, linebacker, he looks like he'll have an opportunity to play. So Florida defensively is getting close to full strength. Again, competitive game. I don't think anyone gets into the 30s unless there's non-offensive touchdowns. Iowa will play well. Florida will play better. I think that defense shines 
in a Gator victory. You look at statistics in this matchup, Iowa's averaging 26 points per game. They're allowing 17 points per game, giving up 153 rushing yards to opposing offenses, 199 passing yards as well, and they're plus seven in turnover margin and played very well in third down defense this year, holding opposing offenses to 34% conversions. You look at Florida on the flip side, 23 points per game by their offense, 129 rushing yards per game, 215 through the air, and defense as well, only giving up 17 points per game. So we'll see how this game plays out. I do think speed is an issue. When you look at this Big Ten SEC battle, this is a fast Florida defense, and we saw them attack a very good LSU Tiger offensive line. Iowa has a, a solid offensive line, but they haven't seen the speed of Florida sideline to sideline, and that's why I like uh, Florida in this matchup. I think this game, I, I want to say I could see this game being like 30-13 to 13 in that area. I, I, I think Florida has enough defensive weapons to really force turnovers and put the pressure on Beathard as well. He's been an inconsistent quarterback much of the year. Yeah, I'm going to say somewhere in the neighborhood. I don't think either team gets to 30, Joe. I, I, I'm going to say Florida 23-24, Iowa somewhere in the teens. So I'll say something like 24-17. to 17. I think Florida covers, Florida defense shines. The player I want to watch is Jordan Scarlett. It, it's really Florida's best offensive weapon. They're going to need to establish the run to set up Del Rio. Uh, in play action, and hopefully third and short opportunities. You've got some good young wide receivers like Tyree Cleveland. Those are players that McIlwain wants to get some more touches in this bowl game heading into 2017. But speed, yes, it does favor Florida. But I like the defensive talent of Iowa. They've had some young players step up, complementing the veterans like Jaleel Johnson in the trenches, Desmond King, you mentioned on the back end. So a lot of talent defensively for Iowa, and that finally started to gel as the regular season unfolded. I think Brandon Powell is a guy they have to get involved in the offense along with Antonio Callaway in the passing attack. They need to get both of those guys involved early and in. look for Del Rio and Austin Appleby to, to establish a rhythm. That's the one thing I think when you look at Florida's offense overall, they've struggled as well in the passing attack. It has hasn't been consistent enough for Jim McElwain, but he's an offensive mind. Doesn't get enough credit either, I don't think, for what he's done with the type of talent in Florida and the injuries that they have overcome to win back-to-back SEC East titles is a testament to what he's doing in Jacksonville. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree, and I, and I think I'll go back to McIlwain. I, I, I like to look at coaches and their motivation in this type of a matchup. Kirk Ferentz, yeah, you want to win a bowl game. He's been to a million of these bowl games, but for Jim McIlwain, you know, played poorly last year, needs to right that ship, uh, obviously struggled in the SEC title game against Alabama, does not want to head into the offseason with a losing streak. So I think he'll have his kids motivated for the matchup with Iowa. Here's the intriguing battle when you look at it overall. Western Michigan and, and Wisconsin, I mean, the MAC has not showed up in the bowl season, has not lived up to expectations, but this is the conference champs in the Broncos, led by their quarterback, Zach Terrell. They have big play weapons in Corey Davis at the wide receiver position, Bogan and Franklin, the running backs. 
I really like this team overall. They're very balanced, Rich, averaging over 200 yards, passing over, averaging over 200 yards, rushing, and defensively second in FBS in turnover margin with plus 19. I think they're going to give Wisconsin all they can handle January 2nd in the Cotton Bowl. I'm calling for the upset Western Michigan over Wisconsin in Arlington. I agree that they give Wisconsin all they can handle, Joe. I disagree that they actually follow through with the upset, and I'll tell you why. I love Western Michigan's motivation. I love the fact that P.J. Fleck is coaching this game. Didn't think that would happen. Obviously, I thought he'd be someplace like Oregon, any place other than Kalamazoo at this point. So Western Michigan will be fired up. Wisconsin, on the other hand, yeah, really nothing to gain here. They preferred to be in the Rose Bowl, but they blew the Big Ten championship game against Penn State. So now they got sort of a consolation prize in the Cotton Bowl. That does concern me. But if you watch the MAC title game, when Western Michigan faced a better-than-average defense in the Ohio Bobcats, they were not as explosive. And now they have to go up against Wisconsin. Paul Christ has done a good job of having the Badgers ready week after week, regardless of the opponent. Defensively, I think this is too much for Western Michigan. Badgers win, Joe, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be a close game throughout. I think the recipe to beat Wisconsin, we saw it in the Big Ten Championship game with Trace McSorley and Penn State, their ability to throw over the top of that defense and attack that secondary in in winning the Big Ten Championship game in Indianapolis. I think that's the recipe for Western Michigan. When I look at Western Michigan overall, here's the thing I look at in terms of attacking that defense. Offensive line has only allowed 14 sacks on the year, so if they protect Zach Terrell, he can get the ball out in three seconds flat into the short to intermediate routes, which will open up the spread offense in terms of the rushing attack for Franklin and Bogan. This can keep Wisconsin off balance. I mean, Wisconsin, you can't argue from a defensive perspective what they've done this year. They're only allowing 96 rushing yards per game. Scoring defense, they're holding opposing offenses to 15 points per game. And they are forcing turnovers as well, plus 11 entering this battle. But I think it's a speed perspective. If Fluke and that offense, they can game plan where they can spread out Wisconsin secondary, open up running lanes. I think that could be the recipe to knock off Wisconsin in this matchup. Hey, Joe, I'm excited to see Corey Davis. I've said for the past couple of years, and I'm sure you would agree, this has been a Big Ten caliber wide receiver out of Illinois playing in the MAC. He is phenomenal. He's going to make a great pro, so I'm excited to see him against that Wisconsin defense. We haven't talked about the Badger offense, though. You have those big beefy, muscular offensive lineman going up against a smallish Western Michigan front seven. So I expect to see Corey Clement have a big day on the ground. Dare Ogunbowale could have a big day on the ground. And how about Alex Hornibrook? Redshirt freshman quarterback. He plays, he doesn't play, he's injured, he's out. Now he has a month to prepare under Paul Christ. 
I expect to see a little more consistency out of the passing game, a little more balance from the Badgers to go along with Corey Clement on the ground. So watch the Wisconsin offense against an undersized Bronco D. It's New Year's Eve. I called him fluke. I meant P.J. Fleck. I said uh, Jacksonville for Gainesville. I'm a little behind the eight ball here. <laughs> I need another cup of coffee yeah. to get through the next hour, Rich. Did but you I'll... crack open the champagne already, Not Joe? yet. I'm on daddy duty. I got all the kids in the studio here, so you got to <laughs> see I'm, I'm keeping an eye out on everybody but I will say this you brought up great points about Alex Hornibrook in terms of his progression I mean I didn't think a redshirt for freshman would be able to take this team to the Big Ten championship game and lo and behold he was able to do it you bring up the offense and Corey Clement they're averaging 204 rushing yards on the ground 179 passing yards per game but they're converting 43 percent on third down conversions when you think about the Big Ten competition that they have played along with the likes of LSU, that's a phenomenal statistic from an offensive perspective. And, and make no mistake about it, Wisconsin is a very, very solid team. They're uh, uh, scoring 27 points per game. When Rich Sermonello and I come back, we'll give our prediction for this battle. Western Michigan, Wisconsin in the Cotton Bowl. Keep it where it is. This is Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello, live from the Big Apple, Rockin' Riley's coming right back. You're listening to the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Back on college football game day, four teams won national championship trophy later today. Alabama, Washington, Ohio State, and Clemson doesn't get better than this. Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello, live from the Rock and Riley State of the Art Studio Fantasy Sports Radio Network. We're going to break down both of those games in the next half hour. Stay with us. But Rich and I were talking about the Cotton Bowl on January 2nd, 1 p.m., Western Michigan and Wisconsin. I'm all over the Broncos here, Rich. I love Western Michigan to strike the upset 37 to 33 over the Badgers. Yeah, you know, the score wouldn't surprise me. I think there will be plenty of points in Arlington, Joe, and I do think Western Michigan will show well. I think P.J. will have his guys ready for this battle, 2-0 against the Big Ten. But at the end of the day, I think Wisconsin will make the defensive stops, and the surprise for me in the Cotton Bowl, Joe, is going to be the Wisconsin offense. I I mentioned Hornibrook. I I like young quarterbacks who've had, you know, a a chance to pause, a chance to exhale – He's had 15 practices in December. I think you're going to see a very capable left-handed quarterback from Wisconsin. Balance on offense. Badgers win this game. Here's the the X factor for me. It's going to be third downs. You have a team in Western Michigan that's converting 54% of their third down conversions. Third down defense by Wisconsin is phenomenal. Holding opposing offenses to 26% on third downs. That's going to be the matchup that plays out uh, on January 2nd. Which team can win the third down battle? I like Zach Terrell. I, I really do. He's a, a scholar athlete. He's a mm-hmm. smart quarterback. And with an offensive weapon like Corey Davis and those running backs of Bogan and Franklin, not only are they solid runners, but they can catch the ball out of the backfield. That can put some pressure on Wisconsin's defense. Here's statistics, Rich. Wisconsin allowed 219 passing yards to Michigan, 226 to Ohio State, and 384 to Penn State. 
That's a, that's a recipe for Western Michigan. You want to attack that secondary. Yeah, and to me, the uh, the height of that was the Big Ten championship game, and they they absolutely collapsed in the second half. So I think Zach Terrell, uh, Corey Davis, I think they'll play well in the Cotton Bowl. But at the end of the day, Wisconsin's going to get the ball. Wisconsin is going to have their opportunity to outmuscle the undersized Western Michigan defense. To me, that'll be the difference. We talk a lot about the Wisconsin defense. And listen, I, I expect to see big plays out of T.J. Watt, Dakota Dixon, a lot of individual talent. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to be talking on Wednesday about the Wisconsin offense and how they were able to game plan in this month of December, game plan for Western Michigan and really have success balancing out the running game with the passing attack. Do you have a score? Because I'm saying it's high scoring because of the yeah, way Yeah, I that, agree. Yeah, I yeah, think I agree. 37-33, but uh, Western Michigan gets the upset victory. You're calling for Wisconsin, right? I, and Yeah, I'm calling for Wisconsin, and I think, that, I think both teams will be in the 30s, Joe. So I'll say 37-31. I think you're right on point as far as the points. I just disagree with who the victor will be. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, that's what you want to see because Wisconsin, if they get the lead, they're going to want to control the clock and keep Zach to off the field. So if Clement and that offense and Hornibrook has success running the football between the tackles and the short to intermediate passing game with PV steps up, could be a long day for Western Michigan. I mean, they played very well against Northwestern and they played a low scoring game. I believe they won that matchup 23 21 or 22 21. So they can play a low style game as well. But it's not their M.O. They're averaging 43 points per game while Wisconsin's in the 20s, 27 points per game. But we'll see how it plays out on January 2nd. That's a 1 p.m. kick. There's two big games on January 2nd, not getting as much fanfare because of the marquee battles in the playoff. USC and Penn State, I mean, two of the hottest teams in the country at USC and Sam Darnold from that Utah game. They just steamrolled every opponent that they faced. He got his feet wet and played very well in that loss in Salt Lake City, but since that point he possibly was one of the best quarterbacks in college football. And then on the flip side, you have that marquee victory in Happy Valley where Penn State knocked off Ohio State and carried the momentum straight through Indianapolis. Trace McSorley really progressed as well. I like Penn State here, but it's it's an unbelievable matchup because these are possibly the two hottest teams in the nation. Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited. I always get excited for the Rose Bowl. To me, it's the best venue for a bowl game. I think it always will be, at least for me. The fan in me loves Pasadena this time of year. Now you have the traditional Pac-12, Big Ten matchup. You have two teams. You mentioned it, Joe. Red Hot. I, I think two teams that you know are almost as good as that third or fourth seed in the playoffs they've played that well at the end and you have two young quarterbacks the redshirt freshman Darnold the sophomore McSorley who could use this game as their catapult into Heisman contention in 2017 so a tremendous amount of storylines I like USC just a little more speed, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Their coordinator, Clancy Pendergrass, has done a tremendous job. We talk a lot about Juju Smith-Schuster. We talk a lot about Ronald Jones and Darnold. But defensively, USC has been my biggest surprise. I think they play well in Pasadena. Fantastic game, competitive, 
but I like USC. You're going to think I'm crazy because I'm a retro guy, right? I cannot stand the Rose Bowl landscape. Really? Yeah, I do not really? like it. Is, I, it. is it too sunny? Is it too uh, antithetical to this time of year on the East Coast for you? Growing up... You know, Rich, uh, we're basically the same age. We're old dudes, mm-hmm. right? I hate to say that on air, but you know, right. we don't look old. But we wear you know, it well. Right. We, we wear, wear it we rather well. We can still be in a boy band. I mean, that's the way yes. I look at it. But <laughs> but, but growing up, and, and I, you know, I have these thoughts of seeing Chuck Long in the Rose Bowl, <laughs> Iowa, UCLA, mm-hmm. uh, you know, back in the day. And, and those matchups were just blowouts. Back in the day, in the you know, we had some good USC Ohio State matchups, but I never wanted to watch that Rose Bowl at four o'clock. Even though I, I stood yeah. in front of the TV, I just I don't know. I just feel like it, it's great. It's Big Ten packed. You know, back in the day, Pac Ten, Pac Twelve, but just never got up for the landscape huh. of the Rose Bowl. I don't know. I'm I'm not a I'm not feeling the West Coast love on there. I, yeah. I, I, I love the setting. I love the backdrop. Uh, yeah, time of day. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it was hard to kind of get cranking those early games on on New Year's Day. Once we got to 4.30, you It almost had a Super Bowl feel to it. I always kind of got the impression that that setting, that time of day, had a Super Bowl feel to it for me. I would like to see Joe Lisi one day. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. <laughs> Master of ceremonies at the Rose Parade. Can you How imagine? sweet would that be? I can imagine that. <laughs> that would be great. That's why I love the lower tier bowls. Like watching that that bowl game between uh, Georgia and TCU last night, mm-hmm. yesterday afternoon, and seeing like the the checkered uh, American flag and the independent. I mean, I love that landscape. Yeah. It looked yeah. great on the screen. It's a it's an afternoon battle. The sun is gazing down. I got gotcha. you. The sun, uh, the Rose Bowl doesn't have that to me. Yeah, you know. Oh, I, I respect that. I respect that. We have differing opinions. I know you're you're more of a Sun Bowl type guy. I uh, love the Rose Sun Bowl. Is, yeah, <laughs> Rose Bowl has always done it for me, but that's cool. That's yeah, cool. we'll see. You can't take away from both of these teams. I mean, if there was an 18 yeah. playoff and both of these yep. teams were involved, I mean, the you wouldn't want to face either one of these teams in the playoff because... I mean, they they have Joe Mo on their side. Here's the thing mm-hmm. I look at when I because I like Penn State here. If you look at James Franklin from his days in Nashville, in their back to back seasons where they won uh, consecutive nine and four seasons, he had his teams prepared in the bowl game each and every year. Both of those games that they won in their respective bowl games. I think the momentum carries through here. I think they've bought into James Franklin. You look at the flip side with uh, Helton there uh, against Wisconsin last year in the Holiday Bowl. Team was not prepared. You could they they had the playmakers to dominate Wisconsin in that matchup, and they lost that, that battle. They were not prepared. Uh, again, Cody Kessler. You look at the weapons that they had on the offensive side of the ball. They could not move the football consistently against Wisconsin last year. I thought Clay Helton did a terrible job in game planning, getting his team ready for that matchup. So does that is that an effect in this battle? They should have the home field crowd here. And I just I, that's the one thing that scares me about uh, picking Southern California in this battle. I like the, the, the gutty blue-collar team in Penn State. 
I, I think it's a little different. To me, it's a there's there, there's a bit of apples to oranges when you talk about 2015 Clay Helton slash USC in 2016. He didn't really find his groove until October. You mentioned Utah. Until after that game, until after that loss, he finally started to feel like he was the permanent head coach of USC. And and this is also a very young football team. I mean, a lot of their stars are sophomores. A lot of their key players are underclassmen, and it took a while before they started to crank. It took mid-October, November, so I can dismiss last year's performance, plus the setting is very different. For any Pac-12 school, particularly USC, to be playing in Pasadena, I don't think there's any chance that they're not motivated for this opponent. I think it's going to be a fantastic game. I'll go back to the quarterbacks. For me, the most riveting matchup is seeing McSorley and Sam Darnold in this setting. Darnold, very poised, plays beyond his years, uh, tends to be a student of the game. McSorley is a lot about emotion. He brings a lot of emotion to that huddle, wears it on his sleeve. It tends to be very contagious to the rest of the Lions. So watching those two young quarterbacks, that to me is the riveting storyline in Pasadena. It should be a very intriguing battle. You look at statistics, USC averaging 32 points per game, very balanced. They're averaging 468 total yards per game, 261 through the air and 206 on the ground. Penn State really came on at the end of the year. 36 points per game by this offense led by Trace McSorley. 433 total yards per game. 261 like USC through the air. 172 on the ground. And that's been the MO. Why you see a big turnaround by Penn State offensively. Not just the progression of Trace McSorley, but the offensive line play. In James Franklin's two years prior in uh, Happy Valley, Valley. The rushing attack did not get going. The previous six years before he was there, they never rushed for less than 143 rushing yards per game. His first two years there, 108 rushing yards on the ground and 138 respectively. This year at 172. So they have that offensive balance and that takes the pressure off the offensive line because last year they allowed 44 sacks with Christian Hackenberg. And it's a much different group this year. Yeah, and you know what? In in Penn State's uh, favor, Joe, Saquon Barkley, the running back, you remember in the second half of the season, had a bad ankle, wasn't 100%, was slowed down the stretch, really wasn't able to show his full potential. Now, and again, we talk about it verbatim, we go over it all the time, but a month is a long period of time, even for an ankle injury, to at least approach 100%. Now, Penn State has an opportunity to have that balance. McSorley to Chris Godwin on the outside, Saquon Barkley working between the tackles. I like the matchup of Barkley versus Cameron Smith, pair of sophomores. Smith, one of the best young run defenders in the country, middle linebacker, hurt in 2015, has really blossomed uh, this season. So for Penn State, Barkley close to 100%. That really benefits the Nittany Lions. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll give our prediction and final score for the 2016 Rose Bowl. This is Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello, live on the Fantasy Sports Radio Network right here in Rockin' Riley's Big Apple. Keep it where it is. We're coming right back. Back on College Football Game Day, we have kicked off in the two early games. Quick updates 
First and 10, Louisville on their own 34-yard line. No score, 12-21 left in the first quarter. In the other game, very intriguing matchup, Kentucky and Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech has jumped out to a 7-0 lead over the Wildcats. A fumble recovery, 41 yards, Rich, allows Georgia Tech to take a 7-0 lead with 7.57 left in the first quarter. They do have the football on their own 23-yard line. This is the recipe for Georgia Tech. If they can control the clock, get an early lead, it could be a long day for Kentucky in this battle. Yeah, listen, if Georgia Tech is producing points defensively, that's a big problem for Kentucky. The concern is going to be the triple option and Justin Thomas. If the defense is scoring, this could be a long afternoon. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. We'll continue with the updates right now. We're continuing our coverage of the Rose Bowl. Quick point that I wanted to break up as well, uh, bring up as well, Rich, was USC's defense. When you looked at that season opening law, uh, loss to Alabama uh, and Jalen Hurts, his mobility on the perimeter really gave that defense fits in that battle, losing that matchup 52-3. to That could be a recipe, even though it was week number one, for James Franklin and more importantly, uh, Trace McSorley to take advantage of in this matchup. Well, you know, it was a long time ago. I would agree with you. It was, uh, what, four months ago now. And, and, and there was no film on Jalen Hurts at that time. There was no way to really game plan for him. Now USC has uh, 13 games, 13 games plus an entire body of work to game plan for Trace McSorley. I like the speed of USC. I like the way they've gelled. And, again, Clancy Pendergast, their defensive coordinator, does a really nice job of attacking without leaving his secondary on an island. So very eager to watch that USC team offensively and defensively in the Rose Bowl. I think this game is going to be low scoring. I think Penn State's defense could force uh, Sam Darnold to methodically work down the field as a defense overall. Statistically, both of these teams are, are almost a mirror images of each other. USC allowing 22 points per game, 359 to opposing offenses, 225 through the air and 133 on the ground. Penn State as well, 23 points per game in scoring defense 352 total yards per game but better in the secondary in the back end only allowing 198 passing yards per game and only 153 on the ground that could be the recipe to force Darnold to methodically work down the field red zone defense takes over and force field goals instead of touchdowns that's the way I see this game playing out, and I have Penn State winning a 23-17 to victory in the Rose Bowl. I do, in fact, think it's low scoring. Do you? Okay. Yeah, I, I have it 30-27. Uh, to I think it's going to be a competitive game. I would be inclined to take the points. I think Penn State can hang with USC. But one other thing to keep in mind, I love Ronald Jones, the USC running back. He's so explosive, so dynamic, really took over after Justin Davis got hurt. But Justin Davis is now coming back to health. So you have that one-two punch in the offensive backfield to complement Sam Darnold. I like USC, but again, I think this could be... I think this could be one of the two or three most entertaining games of the entire postseason. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. It should be a very intriguing battle. I know a lot of uh, eyes will be on the Rose Bowl, and you saw last year the way the Pac-12 stepped up and dominated. Stanford dominating Iowa in the trenches, so we'll see if Penn State can... St- 
day toe-to-toe with USC in this matchup. But we'll see how it plays out. That is a 5 o'clock, 5.30 kick in Pasadena on January 2nd. Last game on January 2nd is the Sugar Bowl, SEC Big 12. We have Gus Miles on, the Gus Bus, and Sean White taking on Bob Stoops and the Oklahoma Sooners. Bob Stoops and Oklahoma stepped up a few years ago. Trevor Knight dominating Alabama and Nick Saban. Now he has Auburn, a traditional rushing attack in this battle. Uh, Baker Mayfield, D.D. Westbrook, Joe Mixon, a lot of negative press over the last couple of weeks. I like Auburn here. I think they can run sideline to sideline and attack Oklahoma's secondary in play action that's given up 276 passing yards per game. Yeah, I, I'm the kind of guy who I, I favor balanced offenses. Uh, I, I am excited to see Cameron Petway, who was injured at the end of the year. I'm excited to see him run for Auburn along with Kerryon Johnson. But I just don't like Sean White. I have no confidence in him threatening that Oklahoma team, which played much, much better in pass defense over the second half of the season. They really gelled, really grew up. So I think Auburn will be one-dimensional, and obviously you mentioned a lot of the weapons of Oklahoma, Baker Mayfield, Samaje Piran, Joe Mixon, D.D. Westbrook, even Mark Andrews, their, their hybrid wide receiver tight end. I expect to see him get in the end zone, but I think this is the Baker Mayfield show. He's coming back next season. I think he channels Drew Brees in the Superdome. I think he has one of those kinds of uh, electrifying efforts in an Oklahoma victory. Yeah, we'll see how that game plays out. Here's what I look at when I look at Auburn defensively with defensive end Carl Lawson in the front seven. They played high-octane offenses with solid quarterback play. Clemson uh, started the year. They lost that battle 19-13, to and they played Chad Kelly on the road in Oxford. Yeah, they allowed over 400 passing yards per game, but they forced turnovers in that battle where are able to run the football consistently. I think that's the same type of recipe. I feel like Auburn, if they get success running sideline to sideline, they can wear down Oklahoma's defensive front seven and then open up the play-action game with Sean White or even uh, Jeremy Johnson should uh, Gus Malzahn mix him into that lineup. That's the way I, I just think Auburn, from a physicality standpoint, mm-hmm. I like them over Oklahoma here. Yeah, listen, I, I love uh, I love what Kevin Steele has done with the Auburn defense this year. You mentioned Carl Lawson, Montrevious Adams up front. They've been beasts for Auburn. The defense has been largely consistent throughout the season. So I think Oklahoma is in for a bit of a rude awakening. They, no, no defenses in the Big 12 will emulate Auburn. So this will be the first time they, they get an opportunity to go up against a really bare-knuckle, at least first time in, uh, since the Ohio State game, a bare-knuckle defense. So I don't think Oklahoma traditionally gets into the 40s. But I think they have too much firepower on a fast carpet in the Superdome, too many weapons, too much balance. And again, I like the defense. The defense has played very well over the second half of the season, at least compared to September. That momentum continues in about a touchdown victory for uh, for the Sooners. Wow. So you, I, you've been all over Baker Mayfield, and rightfully so. He stepped I, up. I like him. I like them. And, and you know what, Joe? It's not just the stats, too. I like a kid that brings moxie into a huddle. I like somebody who has a contagious attitude. He plays as if he loves 
the sport every time he's out there. And, and I love to watch a kid like that. He does. And, and I here's the thing, and I'll get into Oklahoma in a couple of minutes before we go into uh, the, the marquee battles uh, later today at 3 o'clock. But when I look at Auburn's defense overall, I was really shocked with the, the presence that Kevin Steele brought this year from LSU because mm-hmm. last year Auburn only recorded 19 sacks as a, a defensive unit. That ranked 104th in the country out of 127 teams in FBS. This year, they, they started off very fast. They have 25 sacks already, and that offensive line from Oklahoma has shown a propensity to break down and beat key ball games in their battles and that's why I think uh, Auburn will be able to get pressure on uh, Baker Mayfield in this battle and that's why I look for Carl Lawson to step up and I think that they can force uh, Baker Mayfield into mistakes in this battle. For people who like games within the game, and I do, I, I like those chess matches, those head-to-head matchups. You mentioned Lawson. He's had a breakout season, could head to the NFL. How about Carl Lawson versus Orlando Brown, the 6'8", 340-pound left tackle for Oklahoma, one of the best pass protectors in the country. That's a matchup I'm eager to see. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. I think this game could be high scoring as well. I think Auburn could put up some points on Oklahoma here. I, I think Auburn could win this game by double. Digits. I know you think I'm nuts here, but I, I think they could put up a 40 spot on Oklahoma and win this ball game 40 to 30 over the Sooners. Uh, and I look for their rushing attack as well. I think it's the sideline to sideline movement on fly sweeps that will give that defensive front seven problems because they've shown a uh, they've shown in big games Oklahoma's defense. I just don't believe in it. Even though Bob Stoops is came to Oklahoma as a defensive minded coach, he we haven't seen that in in big games in recent years his defense step up here's one other thing to keep in mind too i I know it doesn't always transfer joe but i I think the big 12 entered the postseason with something to prove they obviously don't have somebody in the playoffs been kicked around uh in the media throughout the season but some some impressive victories baylor oklahoma state over colorado um you know the the conference in general has put Kansas State over Texas A&M. Conference has played pretty well. It has. I think that it sort has. of conti- yeah, I think that continues in New Orleans. Yeah, Oklahoma is allowing 160 rushing yards per game. Like I mentioned, they're allowing about 277 passing yards per game. Uh, the one thing I think about Oklahoma, you know, they've dominated Big 12 competition, but again, here's another team that has not forced turnovers consistently entering this battle at minus one, and they have they're even in turnover more on the road or on a neutral field site. So that's why I like Auburn here. And plus, I like the SEC Big 12 battle in this matchup. I think we're getting to the creme de la creme. We see LSU playing Louisville today. We'll see how that game plays out a little bit later. But I think these are the teams now with a physical sense in terms of the physicality of the SEC, the defense alignment that can run sideline to sideline that you see the teams in the Big 12 not be able to stand up against. Yeah, the lower team in the conference really have stepped up but now we're getting into the upper echelon of teams and this is where I think the SEC should dominate 
and, and this is where, you know, for people who start to evaluate if it matters in December, I'm not sure if it does, but when you start to evaluate conferences, you're absolutely right. When you get to those upper echelon teams, the Auburns, the Oklahomas, the Louisvilles, the LSUs, now, now is the time that you could start to say, yeah, my conference really sh- uh, shined when it mattered most. These are the games in which that'll be uh, reflective. And and look for Joe Mixon and, and Sam uh, Perrine to really step up here. They're averaging 237 rushing yards per game as an offensive unit. If they can run the football on that Auburn Tiger defense, that'll open up Baker Mayfield, D.D. Westbrook. Before we go to break, though, do you feel like the negative criticism with the tape of Joe Mixon and the D.D. Westbrook situation will affect this team in any negative way entering the Sugar Bowl? I think he's going to hear a lot. I think the team is going to hear a lot from the stands. In that respect, I think it can impact Oklahoma. But this is something that has been played out over the past couple of years. It's not like it was new news, right? We already litigated this case. So I think I, I think Oklahoma has processed it. I think they've moved on. I think they'll be fine when it comes to mixing in terms of where their head is. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. I'm calling for a 40-30 to 30 game Auburn knocks off Bob Stoops and Oklahoma in a wild, wild Sugar Bowl. What's your prediction, Rich Sermonello? Yeah, I'll go Oklahoma 35, uh, Auburn 30. I agree there'll be plenty of points. Yeah, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be breaking down both semifinal games. Don't touch that dial. This is Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello, live from New York, Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Back on College Football Game Day, College Football Playoff, two games, four teams, one national championship. We're going to break it down right now, Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello. But before we do that, we're giving our prediction for the Sugar Bowl. I already went on record, Auburn 40, Oklahoma 30. Rich, what do you got? I got Oklahoma 35, big day for Baker Mayfield. Auburn 30. Wow. Quick updates on the 11 o'clock games. Louisville takes a 3-0 first quarter lead on LSU. 7-14 left in Orlando. First quarter, Georgia Tech 10. Kentucky nothing. 3-30 left in the uh, first quarter. We'll keep you updated on those 11 o'clock games. Let's get right into it. It's the big one. Alabama number one, number four, Washington. 3-P kick from the Georgia Dome. Rich, I'm calling for Upset City in Yo, a big... you've had time. Big you've way, had time. Richie. 42. You've had time I'm, to rethink, I'm throwing friend. it out there right now, and we could dial Please it back. Reconsider. Washington, Please reconsider. 42. Alabama, 28. They knock out Nick Saban. I might have a fever today, but I love Chris Peterson and the Huskies 3 p.m. kickoff in the Georgia Dome. Joe, is it April Fool's Day already? (laughs) Are you tugging on my leg, buddy? Not at all, Rich. Listen, I'm not saying it's impossible at all, okay? I'll I'll tell you how it's possible for Washington, Washington to win this game. You've got Chris Peterson. Nobody slays Goliath better than Chris Peterson does, particularly in the postseason. You have outstanding wide receivers. You've got a defense that creates turnovers. You have a special teams 
that can give Washington much-needed non-offensive touchdowns, Dante Pettis, John Ross in particular. The problem I have with your assessment is I don't see how they get to 42 points. Now, you, you might be able to call for Washington, but how do they score six touchdowns against that Alabama defense? Well, here's the thing. I think they have the offensive personnel to really open up Alabama and get them out of their base defense. I've said this about the ways you beat Alabama. I really feel you don't run sideline to sideline on the perimeter. That's where, running right into the strength of Alabama's defense. You don't throw short, intermediate uh, bubble screens where you, the linebackers could pursue in coverage. The way you neutralize the speed of Alabama is you, you run directly at it vertically on seam routes. I look at their wide receivers of John Ross, Dante Pettis. Both of those players have combined for 126 receptions, 1,918 yards, 31 receiving touchdowns. Chris Peterson's an offensive guru in terms of formations and we saw a slight recipe about how to beat Alabama from Texas A&M you look at their personnel they had wide receivers Christian Kirk they had Josh Reynolds they had two big play running backs in Travion Williams and Keith Ford and they were able to move the football from a formation standpoint on Alabama, the one thing that I think that uh, Kevin Sumlin and Noel Mazzoni didn't do enough in that battle was attack that secondary vertically on seam routes. That's the way you do it. You get Alabama out of its base defense, and sometimes you need to throw to open up running lanes. I don't have a problem in the matchup of skill position, Joe. You mentioned the receivers. I'll throw in Miles Gaskin, the running back, LeVon Coleman, backup running back. Jake Browning is a student of the game. He has next-level arm talent. I don't have a problem there. The issue that I have is I think Washington is going to get dominated at the point of attack. I don't like their offensive line. They're a garden-variety unit. I go back to the USC game. That, to me, is really testament to what we'll see in Atlanta today. USC dominated Washington in the trenches really gave a lot of problems to that offensive line. They took Jake Browning out of his rhythm. He had his worst game of the year. That's what I expect today. I don't see anyone on that Washington offensive line that can control Jonathan Allen, that can control Tim Williams or Ryan Anderson off the edge, or even on the interior with Dalvin Tomlinson and Deron Payne. So that, to me, is the biggest problem. Washington has the speed. They have the skill, talent. They don't have it in the trenches to control that Alabama front seven. Well, I think they'll use that game film as a, a game plan for this Alabama game. They're not going to make the same mistakes that they did against USC. And I can tell you this, the way you neutralize a pass rush as well is you throw screen passes. And I don't mean bubble screens. I mean screen passes to Miles Gaskin. Get those offensive linemen out on the perimeter and blocking downfield. And that's where you can beat Alabama. It's... Again, it's very simple. If you, It's not how many times you pass, because I'll tell you this, you can pass a limited amount of times, but if you pass on the right downs, first and second down, traditional rushing downs where Alabama's playing run, and get them to second guess, that will open up running lanes later in the matchup. So I look at Texas A&M, and from a, a physicality standpoint, I don't think they were as physical on the defensive side of the ball as Washington is now. You look at this defense by Washington, very solid in run support, only giving up 123 rushing yards per game. As a defense, Rich, as you know, only giving up 17 points per game. Third down defense is phenomenal. Holding opposing offenses to 30% conversions on third down. And the biggest thing for me, they lead 
FBS in turnover margin, plus 21 overall. Yeah, I really like the defensive personnel. I look at the Washington defense, Joe, and to me, it sort of smacks of an SEC defense. I know we we characterize Pac-12 as just finesse and speed, but Washington is very physical up front. Vita Vea is a player I would encourage anyone who watches the game uh, to take a look at today, number 50 on the Washington defense, back end, Buda Baker, Sidney Jones, arguably their best pro caliber player, their cornerback, Sidney Jones. But here's an issue that I have. Where does the pressure come from? When they lost Joe Mathis to a season-ending injury and then lost their linebacker, Azeem Victor, to a season-ending injury, Washington is sort of devoid of a true pass rusher down in down out so you know we haven't talked about Jalen Hurts we haven't talked about the wave of backs that Bama can throw at you we haven't talked about their receivers are Darius Stork very underrated Calvin Ridley did not have a great sophomore season but is a very polished receiver OJ Howard their tight end so I think Washington will have some problems with the Alabama offense especially if they can't generate a pass rush. do you feel like the layoff could affect Alabama in any way I know that we haven't seen it in recent years we saw Alabama step up in terms of dominating Connor Cook in Michigan State last year with a senior quarterback in Jay Coker I mean he really stepped up and wanted to go out in style uh to end his career, but I think that the layoff could possibly affect Jalen Hurts here. I know he hasn't shown that up until this point, but he is still a true freshman. And when you have a young player like a Jalen Hurts that is coming into his own as a quarterback and mature from a maturity level, and not only as that, but as a quarterback in his reads and progressions, timing with those wide receivers, timing with the offensive line, do you feel like this layoff could be a detriment to Alabama in any way? Because I do. Joe, I always worry about layoffs because you never know how a team is going to react from having a month off, a month without contact. So I do always worry about that. But let me play devil's advocate when it comes to Jalen Hurts. I I would take the opposite approach. I, I think a young quarterback, true freshman, to have that extra time to build that rhythm, to build that chemistry, to be coached by Lane Kiffin. Yes, I know Lane is headed to Florida Atlantic, but he's still the offensive coordinator. To have that extra time for a true freshman quarterback, everything was moving so fast during the regular season. Now he's had a chance to slow things down, get back to sort of being a student again. I think we might see a more polished passer in Jalen Hurts in Atlanta. Do we have a, a, a report on Lane Kiffin? Is he actually in Georgia? Because Alabama forgot him on the bus again. I mean, <laughs> if I mean, yeah. I've never seen a coach. Have you ever seen a, a high? He's yeah. not. He's not the the, the equipment manager. He's the offensive coordinator of your national defending national championship team. This is not the first time they've left him off the bus. Is Nick Saban sort of like, you know, can you can you leave Tuscaloosa already, even though you're doing a <laughs> yeah. great job? Yeah, that, that's a that's a not so subtle hint that I, I mean, think Nick is is done with Lane and ready for Steve Sarkeesian to take over as the offensive coordinator. But really, Rich, think about it. We're not talking about a team like, and not to be like a, a Joe Schmo College in a community college. We're talking about an elite program. It wasn't one time. This is like the third time Lane yeah. Kiffin has been left behind by a team bus or uh, by the team. I don't know if he doesn't have his itinerary right, but I, I mean, come on now. I mean, this is a, a, to make headlines like this in a negative way. I mean, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah, Lane is an acquired taste, and I think he can get under under people's skin. So I I, I think, uh, yeah, leaving them behind on the bus sometimes, uh, I I think a lot of teams would like to do that with Lane Kiffin. Unbelievable. I want to give the love for Alabama here because I don't want to be called an Alabama hater. I mean, Alabama for years now is the the dominant team in college football, four national championships in six years. Nick Saban, just an outstanding job in Tuscaloosa best modern day coach of the era they're uh, scoring 40 points per game 245 on the ground and 226 on through the air with Jalen Hurts the big thing for me too on their offense is their third down conversions converting as an offense 47 percent as a whole when you can uh, move the chains and wear down opposing defensive fronts it gives your defense an opportunity to rest as well and more more importantly, uh, allows you to assert your will. There, when you can continue to move the sticks, fifty percent, almost fifty percent of the time, that's really a momentum builder and really breaks the will of opposing defenses. Yeah, and nobody prepares this time of year better than Nick Saban. He does a remarkable job of keeping kids focused kids who are used to winning they're defending national champions and yet they still have that hunger that to me is the most impressive thing that Nick Saban and his staff led by Jeremy Pruitt on the defensive side do so uh, layoff could affect teams in very odd ways but I think even after a slow start I think you'll start to see Alabama really uh, really pick up the speed in the second quarter. Washington's going to need to run the football. There's been only two teams against the Alabama Crimson Tide that has rushed for over 100 yards. It was Ole Miss 101 in Oxford and Texas A&M 114 in Tuscaloosa. This is the number one ranked rushing defense in college football allowing 63 rushing yards per game as a defense number one statistically as well holding opposing offenses to 11 points per game, only giving up 184 passing yards as well, 29% third down defense. And oh, by the way, they do have 45 sacks on the year. When Rich and I come back, we'll take a quick break. We'll give our prediction. I already gave mine, but we'll give our prediction and move on to the uh, 8 o'clock battle, Ohio State and Clemson. Keep it where it is. This is Joe Lisi, Rich Sermonello on the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Back on College Football Game Day, last segment of the show. Before we give our analysis and prediction for the two playoff games, a quick update. LSU on the on the one-yard line, second and goal against Louisville. Cardinals hanging on to a 3-0 lead start of the second quarter. And in Georgia Tech and Kentucky, Georgia Tech with a 10-3 lead, 11-36 left in the second quarter. We'll keep you updated in the next 10 minutes on those games. But Rich and I are breaking down both playoff games. I gave my prediction. It's a bold one. I'm calling for an upset in the Georgia Dome. Number four, Washington, 42. Number one, Alabama, 28. I don't have a fever. I'm going out on a limb. I believe it. The Huskies will move on to the national championship game. Okay, Washington will not score 20 points this afternoon. Number one, I I have it 34, Alabama. Washington 13 and 
The Tide will score their 16th non-offensive touchdown of the season. I'm going to say Minka Fitzpatrick on a pick six. You, you're like a buzzkill for the holiday season. Like, you know, I mean, <laughs> like, really, I had everybody amped up. It's New Year's Eve. We're ready for the ball to drop. Number four, Washington, going to go off in style. And you kill all of those hopes and dreams with just a, a not going to score. If they score more than 20, are you getting a tattoo? No, I'm not going with the Lisi <laughs> tattoo, but I will say it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on record right now. If Washington scores 40, 42, I will get the Lisi tattoo on your body part of choice. <laughs> All right. I'm taking this. I'm That's spreading it. it around. 42-28. We'll hold Rich Sermonello to that uh, prediction a little bit later today. Let's get to the marquee battle, Rich. It is number two, Ohio mm-hmm. State. It is number three, Clemson, in this battle. Uh, a very intriguing game, to say the least. Marquee styles here. You have a, a blue-collar team for the most part, led by JT Barrett and Ohio State. All they do is win, baby. They got a gutty victory, season-ending victory in Columbus against Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. Urban Meyer has his teams mentally prepared for these types of games. And on the other side, you have big game head coach Dabo Sweeney with possibly the best quarterback in college football and Deshaun Watson. This is, this is the one game I can't wait to see at 8 o'clock tonight. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this, this is the best matchup, uh, possibly Penn State-USC number two. This is the best matchup of the postseason. Hard to find a lot of separation between these two programs. Equally talented, terrific coaching staffs. Uh, I, I'm favoring Clemson. But it's so hard to bet against Ohio State and Urban Meyer. Meyer is nine and two in bowl games, ten and two in the postseason uh, throughout his career. So this one could go either way, Joe. I fully expect it to be uh, close in the fourth quarter. And in a game like that, I say, give me Deshaun Watson. I was not impressed by J.T. Barrett this year. I don't know who other than Curtis Samuel steps up for the Ohio State offense. Give me a name. Give me someone who can step up and stretch a very good Clemson defense this evening. It might be the Ohio State defense that steps up, though, Rich. We've seen it in recent years. We saw it in the run against uh, Oregon in the national championship game. That defense played lights out. And if your defense is forcing three and outs, uh, you know, and you're getting field position, it doesn't necessarily have to be one player. It could be a unit that steps up. It could be a special teams unit that steps up, punting or return game that gives your offense field position where they don't have to go a long distance and just make enough plays like like they did against Michigan. They found ways. They got a turnover, uh, an opportunistic turnover that put their offense in a position to score. Uh, you look at this defense overall, Rich, by Ohio State. Both defenses lights out, by the way. I'll go through, through the statistics. Ohio State averaging 42 points per game as an offense, 258 on the ground, 221 through the air defensively allowing 17 points per game, very solid in run support, allowing 117 rushing yards to opposing offenses and only 164 passing yards to opposing quarterbacks. There's only been one team that has completed 60% or more on the Buckeye secondary. It was Wilton Spate and the Michigan Wolverines. On the flip side, you have Clemson averaging 40 points per game, 173 on the ground, 332 through the air, defensively allowing 18 points per game, 
125 in rush defense, 188 in passing defense, and there's only been three teams that have completed 60% or more of their passes against the Tigers secondary, Rich. It was Louisville, Syracuse, and Virginia Tech. But here's the difference for me. Ohio State, plus 16 in turnover margin. Clemson even entering this battle. Yeah, I love the defensive talent. I think NFL scouts will drool over the prospects of watching this Fiesta Bowl. Ohio State's secondary as good as any in the country. Clemson's defensive line as good as any in the country. Ohio State will have the edge in special teams because of their punter, Cameron Johnston. So you're right. There could be someone special teams defensively that really tips the scales in this game. I look at the weakest unit in the Fiesta Bowl for me. It's the Ohio State offense. Again, I'll I'll reiterate it. Not impressed by JT Barrett. Terrific leader. Terrific young man. He'll be a good ball distributor, but he needs more weapons with which to connect. I don't think Mike Weber out of the backfield will be enough against the Clemson front seven. I don't think Noah Brown. They really need Noah Brown to show up. I mean, where has Noah Brown been since that four-touchdown game against Oklahoma? They need someone other than Curtis Samuel to be a play He's been non-existent since that game, and you look at surprising, right, Joe? Unbelievable, because uh, that was the mo for Ohio State entering the year. They both had three offensive starters, three defensive starters returning. They lost their top three wide receivers, and that was the big problem for me. Where are they going to find offensive production from those wide receivers? I liked Oklahoma in that battle against Ohio State because of that fact. And lo and behold, Noah Brown steps up and has a dominant, dominant day, Mm -hmm. but it never continued and you look at JT Barrett's performance over the last two games now 25 of 54 completions 210 yards one touchdown one interception he's going to need a better effort than that against Clemson secondary both defenses are solid in third down defense rich Ohio State allowing 30 percent Clemson allowing 29 percent Clemson has the edge in terms of sacks, 46 sacks, Ohio State, 30 sacks. But here's what I look at when I look at the offense by Clemson. Five games this year, 200 yards or more rushing. Last year, in 11 of the 15 games, they rushed for over 200 yards of offense. Last year, as a unit... They rush for 224 yards on the ground. This year, entering this battle, they're more one-dimensional, 173 rushing yards per game, more relying on Deshaun Watson's arm. They're going to need his legs in this battle to pick up this victory, and that's why I like Ohio State. I haven't seen the consistency enough. I'm picking a low-scoring game. Ohio State 27, Clemson 20. The Buckeyes move on to face the Huskies in the national championship game. It would not shock me. I mean, I, I, I like Clemson. I don't love Clemson. I think this game is a toss-up, could go either way. I see more scoring. I think this is kind of a seesaw battle. Might start a little bit slow, but watch this game percolate in the second half. I think both teams will go back and forth, sort of landing body blows, landing uppercuts. I see it Clemson 34, Ohio State 30. The star is going to be Deshaun Watson. At the end of the day, in a close game that can go either way, Deshaun Watson is so poised, such a clutch player. This is his last or next to last game as a college quarterback. I think he goes out on a high note 
And again, Clemson 34, Ohio State 30. I think it's an instant classic in the Fiesta Bowl. Could there be one player that we're not talking about from either team that can make a play or uh, possibly change this game? For me, on the Clemson side of the ball, you, you think of Deion Kane, you think of Ray Ray McLeod, but Jordan Leggett's a guy as well that in red zone opportunities, he could really be a difference maker. Do you have one on either team? Well, you went Clemson. I'll go Ohio State. One of their linebackers, Chris Worley, 18 tackles in his final two games. We talk a lot about Raekwon McMillan. Uh, you know, a lot of defenders have played better than expected this season, Jerome Baker being one of them. But Chris Worley, strong side linebacker, really impressed me in the final two games, especially against Michigan. So he's somebody who could shine unexpectedly uh, in Glendale. Yeah, it should be very interesting. Rich Sermonello laying up like tin cup there. He's taking Alabama and Clemson, a rematch of 2015. I'm going out on a limb. It's Ohio State and Washington for Rich Sermonello. This is Joe Lisi. We hope you enjoy the games. Stay with us all season long. Have a happy new year. College football is the best. We just love talking about it. Enjoy the weekend, everyone. Stay with us.